The moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt proposed in his 2012 book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, that human nature is, quote, 90% chimp and 10% bee. What Haidt meant by this is that while humans bear many of the social similarities as their near genetic relative chimpanzees, we can also, in the right circumstances, have our hive switch turned on to behave like bees working, quote, for the good of the group, not just our own advancement within the group, end quote. Haidt proposed that given the right conditions, this hive switch causes us to transcend selfish interest and lose ourselves with an ecstatic sense of being connected to something much bigger than our selfish interests. To understand the proper conditions for what flips on our hive switch and its connection to religious experience, Haidt argues that we need to understand the work of Emile Durkheim, who proposed that humans exist on two levels, or as homo duplex, with an individual mode and a part of a larger group mode. Why bees? Well, evolution often framed on the individual level. An individual creature has these genetic traits and features that allow them to survive better or become more attractive to a mate and then pass on their genetic information through sexual reproduction. We know that that's kind of like the typical way evolution is framed. You know, the better you are at surviving and attracting mates, the more progeny you create over successive generations, the more of those evolutionary advantages gets passed on, etc., etc. But with bees, we have to consider another dynamic. The success of the individual bee is connected to the success of its group as the group competes with other groups. As humans, we're constantly navigating dynamics between our individual desires and how those desires affect the group. The group creates pressures to ensure better cohesion, and we become deeply aware of those social pressures in a multitude of ways. Think of a basketball team. A very good scorer is of obvious benefit to the team in its competition with other teams. But a team of unselfish players committed to each other like, let's say, the Tim Duncan-era San Antonio Spurs. They can beat a team that has the best individual scorer if that scorer pursues his own glory at the expense of the team. Under the right conditions, something in us can get switched on, which turns down the default mode of selfish interest and cranks up our concern for the group like bees devoted to the hive and the queen. Durkheim believed that given the right conditions, with this switch turned on, those who share in the hive experience a sort of super group flow state that he called collective effervescence. Quote, the very act of congregating is an exceptionally powerful stimulant once the individuals are gathered together, a sort of electricity is gathered from their closeness and quickly launches them to an extraordinary height of exaltation, end quote. For Durkheim, this temporary shift of consciousness pulls humans into what he called the realm of the sacred, as opposed to the realm of the profane, which is where we spend the majority of our daily lives concerned about our individual well-being, survival, status, etc., with the hive switch flipped on, we become less concerned about the profane and more caught up with the sensation of connectedness to something larger than ourselves. 
Now, obviously, many of you who may be first encountering these ideas I'm presenting may already be conjuring up pictures of Christians gathered for worship, or maybe you're picturing 60,000 fans at a football game or a few hundred passionate partisans at a political rally. Is this sense of rapture that people experience in each of these scenarios just the hive switch getting flipped on? Is that all people are experiencing when they talk about experiencing the presence of God in worship? Let's address these questions in today's episode. You're listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. I'm your host, Paul Ann Leitner. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the support of listeners just like you on Patreon. Check out the link in the description to find out how you can get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community. And before we begin, I just want to remind you that my debut book, Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering, is now available on Amazon or at barnesandnoble.com. Um, check it out, pick up a copy. You can find a link in the description as well. If you've already read the book, I invite you to consider leaving a review. That will help others who might just be kind of surfing around Amazon possibly find this book. Uh, we're not doing advertisement or paid promos anywhere else. So the only way people are going to discover it is by word of mouth or by the sheer chance that your review might improve the algorithmic success of this book reaching someone else. So thanks for considering doing that. Again, all those relevant links are in the description of this podcast. Now let's get back into today's episode. Now, Emile Durkheim believed that our movement into, again, what he called the realm of the sacred or what Jonathan Haidt has called the, the hive switch is what gave rise to each human culture's ideas about gods, spirits, and, and even the very foundations for their sense of an objective moral order. Now, while I'm in disagreement with the part of their thesis that proposes that our notions or ideas of God are emergent properties of these sort of evolutionary switches, these psychological phenomenon that we experience as a byproduct of really like, you know, just the, the evolutionary process of survival for the fist. I still think there are some things about Durkheim and Haidt's thesis that's correct at least some on at least some level. And if we assume that Durkheim and Haidt's thesis is correct on at least some level, that we can actually see evidence scientific evidence that supports there is this sort of psychological switch that moves us out of that sort of default mode and into this mode where we become more aware what we've talked about in the Jesus and John Verveke series as moving beyond our our selfish concerns so moving beyond uh, or transcending our selfish concerns once we move into this different mode I do think there are some important questions we need to wrestle with even if we we assume to be true, which I do find there to be compelling evidence that there is something akin to what I calls a hive switch present in us that moves us into these modes of being. Even if I assume that that is true, 
I still have two distinct questions at play that I want to wrestle with here together that really help us to think theologically about this, to think about this from a Christian perspective, missiologically, to think about it even when it comes to ecclesiology, to our liturgy. And the first question is this, is a scientific description of the mechanisms by which we experience a profound sense of transcendence make the nature and telos of the experience reducible to that description? Let me explain here a little bit. So, for example, um, a few months ago, my wife and I went to go see one of our all-time favorite bands, Sigurós. You know, Sigurós is one of my favorites. We saw them live in concert. Um, you know, when COVID hit, we were like, hey, uh, if we ever get back to a point where we can, you know, go to live concerts once again, we're going to spare no expense. If we have one of these on our bucket list, we're going to do this well. We only live once, right? So when Seeger Rose came to town, we did that. We said, spare no expense. This is our anniversary. This is our birthday gift. This is everything rolled into one. We're going to go see Seeger Rose and we're going to get as close to seats as possible. So we got second row seats from the stage. Um, for me, the music of Seeger Rose has reliably shifted me out of what you know Durkheim called the realm of the profane. <laughs> so it, it, it all has regularly produced that even when I just have been listening at home or with headphones on in a car. And seeing them live in concert was no different. Again, we were like two rows from the stage. And and being a musician myself, I, I began to notice watch, while watching them play things I would not have typically given my attention to when I would just, you know, listen at home or, or listen, uh, you know, on headphones or in the car. So as I'm watching them, I'm watching, uh, what's the guy's name, Jonesy and his, his guitar playing that he bows all the time. I'm starting to notice things. And, and at one point I, I leaned over to uh, Carrie and, and, and started calling out the chord changes, you know, like, this section is just one to four with, you know, with it being in the key of G, they're, they're just playing G to C here, which, you know, she promptly elbowed me in the ribs and just said, hey, you know, just enjoy the music. By giving a musical description of these, these intervals being played, I wasn't capturing all that the music was or getting at the teleological aims of the band even though my description wasn't wrong. So I can allow Haidt and Durkheim and other um, behavioral, cognitive, and social scientists descriptions, scientific descriptions of psychological phenomenon. I can allow those to be true at a certain level of description while not allowing that level of description to make the entire experience reducible to that description. Just like saying at this particular section in the Seagaro song that going from one to four or, you know, G to C was an accurate description of what was happening, it simultaneously didn't capture on all levels of analysis what was happening in the music. In the same way, we should not be worried by scientific descriptions of processes that can shift us into a greater sense of transcendence. A description on this level does not negate other levels of description. I'm fascinated by the processes because so often I find that Christians, you know, particularly those who, like me, have inhabited more 
mystically inclined Christian traditions. You know, I'm thinking about the Charismatics and Pentecostals. I'm, I'm thinking about even you know the the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and their, um, you know, their their deep reverence of the sort of contemplative and mystical traditions of the church. I am fascinated by these processes because I so often find that Christians who have maybe inhabited these kinds of traditions and been in these experiences can't actually differentiate between what makes a sense of transcendence genuinely sacred and part of a genuine communing with God and what is merely like just the hive switch being engaged and applied to some other telos. And the telos makes all the difference. I believe this is how we can properly recontextualize the meaning of the spiritual gift that the Apostle Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12, 10 as the discerning of spirits. If the spirit claims that we encounter, and I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by spirit, because I know some of you who maybe don't inhabit those traditions, or maybe you come out of them, you're, you're kind of like deeply suspicious of when people start talking about spirits. You know, I'll reframe that momentarily, but what I want to say is that if the spirit that we encounter in the hive switch mode claims to be the highest aim and chief fulfillment of our lives instead of merely a signpost pointing us to higher and to the higher and deeper reality of God, then that spirit is an idol and it's impotent at bringing true and lasting life. This gets me to my second related question of, well, what are the different ways the hive switch is engaged and are there both true and counterfeit ways that it produces a sense of sacredness, which does not, in fact, bring us into communion with the genuine sacred? In other words, if the hive switch is real, how can we tell the difference between a real and genuine encounter with God and a counterfeit experience which claims the authority of God? In Haidt's book, A Righteous Mind, he highlights four examples of practices that he sees as, um, you know, good test cases for demonstrating how the hive switch is turned on and moves us from typically profane, self-centered concerns and into a sensation of losing ourselves into something bigger than ourselves. The first that he talks about is awe in nature. Haidt describes how it was awe in nature that produced the 19th century transcendentalist movement popularized by the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson had argued in the 1830s that the deepest truths were only accessible not through reason or scientific uh, empiricism, but through intuition as one came into contact with the grandeur and wonder of nature. Quoting Emerson here, quote, Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. End quote. 
For Ralph Waldo Emerson, nature offered a portal to shift from the profane to the sacred. Hyde's theory is that experiences of being immersed in the natural wonders of the world plays on the same circuitry as the hive switch by tapping into two important psychological experiences. The first is vastness, or an experience in which something makes us feel small. And the second is need for accommodation. That is an experience that is not easily assimilated into our current mental structures. Therefore, must it must change the structures to make room for the experience. The combination of these two psychological phenomenon, that is vastness and need for accommodation, is the experience of awe. And awe kicks on the hive switch by hitting you with the fundamental realization across all hive experiences you are a small part of a larger whole. The second example of a practice that Haidt argues switches on the hive mode is the consumption of hallucinogens and psychedelics. This is obviously a subject I've covered quite a bit over the history of this podcast, and I'm not going to rehash all my previous points here. Instead, I just want to focus on Haidt's argument that across many different cultures and particularly more ancient civilizations, hallucinogens have been used as a ritualistic way of creating group bonding and pushing individuals to leave their profane individual concerns so that they can be, quote, subsumed to the needs of the social group, end quote. Again, the mechanism here is similar to that of awe in nature. The profane survival mode of the mind is turned down while a greater awareness of a broad connectedness to the whole is turned on. Typically, the visions that accompany these altered states of consciousness don't fit the normative frame of our pre-existing mental structures. And so, as I've described in previous podcast episodes, let's say uh, in the Jesus and John Verveke series is one example, our frame is expanded. Now, of course, the question always returns to, at least for me, to whether or not the experiences and intuited information gained from these altered states of consciousness expand our frame in a way that brings us into correspondence or coherence with reality or not. For example, um, you know, my often described nine dot problem analogy from Verveke, you know, to solve the nine dot problem of connecting all nine dots you know, if you picture, if you haven't heard, listen to previous episodes, you don't know what the nine dot problem is. If you can picture on a sheet of paper, three rows of three dots, the goal of the nine dot problem is you have to connect all nine dots with straight lines and without lifting your pencil off the paper. And in order to do that, in order to actually solve that nine dot problem, the only way you can solve it is you actually have to move your pencil outside of the three by three frame. You have to move outside of your probably typical framing boundaries. Though thinking outside the frame is necessary, it does not mean that by moving your pencil outside of the frame that you're guaranteed to solve the problem, right? Just because I that is a necessary step, it doesn't mean that automatically, if I just move my, paint or my pencil outside of that three by three frame, that I'm going to automatically solve the problem. There's no doubt in my mind that psychedelics and hallucinogens move people outside of their normative framing, but this does not automatically mean that in doing so that they've gotten any closer to solving the nine-dot problems of life. 
Maybe some have, maybe some have found the experiences to do that. Thus far, I'm not convinced that it's a reliable and advisable method for solving life's nine dot problems. The third example Height gives is that of rave parties, ritualistic, like repetitive trance beats, groups of people moving and dancing to the shared rhythms of the music, the light and atmosphere denoting a space that is different from the typically profane places we inhabit. Raves have probably fallen out of fashion since Height first wrote the book, but it is an interesting example to ruminate on. One particular feature of the rave is that it is dissimilar from the examples of awe in nature and psychedelics in that the role of movement, particularly dancing, creates what the historian and military veteran William McNeil described as muscular bonding. McNeil became fascinated with the cohesive power of group movement while in the army, quote, marching aimlessly about on the drill field, swaggering in conformity with prescribed military postures, conscious only of keeping in step so as to make the next move correctly and in time, somehow felt good, end quote. These drills didn't really make sense in a modern army, according to, to McNeil. Soldiers never marched neatly into battle anymore, and yet many veterans may describe how these mindless maneuvers produced a peculiar sense of camaraderie. In fact, this deep sense of camaraderie is so profoundly meaningful that many veterans return home to find that civilian life rarely comes close to duplicating the experience. A fourth example Height gives is the experience of a major college football game. Ritualistic dress, chants, and customs can be found at pretty much any major college football game in the country on a Saturday afternoon. If you look at the student section, you'll see regular expressions of muscular bonding where students have coordinated gestures and dances that might accompany a school fight song or the distinct sounds of the school marching band. The more passionate and unique these rituals and customs are, the more spirit a school has. For height, these college football spectacles garner so much attention and money because they are effective at moving people from Durkheim's lower level of the profane and into a sensation of the upper level or the sacred. Now, of these four examples, which isn't an exhaustive list, which of these have you experienced and have produced in you a sense of transcendent connection where your individuality gets caught up in something that feels bigger than you? I've never been to a rave, uh, but I felt similar things at concerts. I've felt both in playing and spectating sports, this sort of transcendent connection where my individual individuality is kind of caught up in the sensation of something bigger. bigger. Um, I've certainly felt on nature. I haven't done psychedelics, but I trust the accounts of friends who have. Thinking of examples like these, I also recall moments in my youth when I would visit a friend's Pentecostal church. Now, as many of you know, I grew up in a charismatic context, so I was no stranger to dancing in church, but the dancing that happened in this small Pentecostal church was different. To be quite honest, in, in my normative frame of mind, in my profane frame of mind, if you will, I hate dancing. 
yeah, I'm a musician and I'm I'm actually a fairly competent athlete, but for some reason, the dancing thing never clicked. <laughs> you can just ask my wife. Dancing for some reason has always felt a bit like breathing underwater. It just isn't in my nature. Yet when I would go visit this Pentecostal church, I'd absolutely lose myself in dancing. You know, when people talk about the, the spirit coming upon you, you know, I just recently watched that um, that Elvis movie that just came out with Tom Hanks and I, I forget the other actor's name. And of course, there's this scene of a young Elvis, you know, entering into a, a tent revival meeting and he he gets he he he, he gets caught up in in the spirit. And, you know, there was some extreme expressions of that in the movie. Like suddenly I feel like at the end he was like crowd surfing. I've never seen, you know, a boy get crowd surfed at a Pentecostal church. But there was a, a sense of accuracy in, in that depiction as well. It was something I could actually relate to. There is this very real sense when people talk about the spirit coming upon you. It's, it's an accurate description. You can literally feel like an operating system change in your brain and body. When this would happen, I lost all concern for how stupid I looked dancing and would dance. I would dance so hard that my clothes were soaked in sweat. I remember like going to these Pentecostal conferences and like days after my calves hurting in ways that like didn't hurt after a basketball tournament. I was dancing so hard. I lost all concern. Now, when I think back on those experiences, or maybe some of you can recall particular experiences, whether they were dancing or not, church experiences where you felt overwhelmed, right? Like for me, when I was in that Pentecostal context, I felt way outside of my normative frame way outside of what I would normally, how I would normally act in a given situation. I lost all concern, any sense of egotism. I hadn't, I wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. I was just caught up in the moment. I was caught up in what I would describe at the time as caught up in the spirit. Now, when I reflect back on that, I ask the question, given what I know now, was that the spirit of God or was it just the hive switch. Now, I actually don't think that's the right question anymore. I have zero doubts that a physical change of states happen in my brain when I am experiencing what I believe is the Spirit of God. In fact, I'd say it's theologically necessary to affirm that. I'm not a spirit or soul trapped in a body. That's Gnosticism. All of my spiritual experiences interface through neurons, cells, endorphins, all of this in my flesh and blood body. That sensation of experiencing the presence of God can't happen without a neurochemical reaction. But there's a considerable difference between both reducing any and all religious experiences to neurochemical reactions and blindly assuming that any and all neurochemical reactions that give us a sense of euphoria or Durkheim's collective effervescence, that those are an experience of genuine communion with God. It doesn't have to be either or. I promise you that Nazis goose-stepping in perfect unison to a Nazi rally to hear Hitler call the German people to a unified collective national identity 
they felt that hive switch click on and experienced collective effervescence. Snake handling churches most certainly experience it. People who immersed themselves in the Yes We Can movement of Barack Obama's initial campaign for presidency felt it just like those who brandied about the red MAGA hat as they attended a Trump rally. The hive switch being kicked on is not a reliable indicator of the genuine sacredness of an experience. Whether something is good or not has to do with whether it is performing its designated function or not. If we think about the college football example in the language of school spirit, the question we need to ask is not whether or not the experience is producing an intense or passionate school spirit, but what kind of school spirit is this? Is it a good school spirit? The school spirit, if you will, of the Nazis was intense, passionate. It effectively mobilized national unity and internal bonds of being willing to sacrifice your life for the other members of your group. But it wasn't a good spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul consistently returns to the production of Christ-like virtues as the best indicator of a genuine encounter with the sacred. Consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. End quote. Man, again, to me, that's one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament, and it provides us some healthy parameters for thinking about, well, what what does it look like when we've actually had a genuine encounter with Christ? We've had a genuine encounter with God. If it doesn't produce love, if we do not see love as the chief virtue demonstrated in our life, again, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, then it, it should be cause for concern. Or let's give another consideration, another maybe helpful parameter. Consider what Paul writes in Galatians 5, starting off at verse 16, quote, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. But they are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. End quote. Though Paul obviously had, he had no knowledge of modern behavioral or cognitive science, we can see how this tension between the acts of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit might map onto Durkheim's realm of the profane and sacred or heights were 90% chimp, 10% be analogy. Paul's acts of the flesh look like giving in to animalistic appetites as an individual with no concern for the well-being of the whole. They're like the worst case scenario for living a purely profane life driven by individually oriented survival instincts. The fruits of the Spirit are virtues that have tamed these selfish vices and move us into a connection to the whole, but not merely the whole of our particular group and the group's interests, but it moves us into pursuing the good of all groups across the whole of creation. You could go to like a Ohio State, Michigan football game have your hive switch engaged, feel caught up in collective effervescence, and yet as part of the temporary subsuming of your individual identity into the group, you could have the spirit of the group direct your passions to be enraged and even violent towards your opponent. The likelihood of you getting into a fight if you're a Michigan fan like I am with someone wearing an Ohio state in that particular state of mind with the hive switch engaged is far more likely than if you were just walking through the grocery store on a random Tuesday afternoon and saw someone in the aisle that had an Ohio state hat on, isn't it? I mean, it's like obvious. So what spirit is this hive mode connecting you to? Is it producing virtues in you that lead to God's intended right ordering of the entire cosmos? Is it constantly drawing you into an endless journey of awe and wonder over communion with an infinite God? Or is it communicating to you that a created thing will satisfy all your needs and longings? These are the questions that Christian communities must constantly reflect on, especially in those contexts which do place a high value on experiences of God. Without careful reflection and examination, a church community can claim something like, we love the presence of God, but what they really love is just having their hive switch turned on each week. The solution I'm proposing isn't to avoid behaviors and practices that might turn on that switch. No, this switch has a proper teleological purpose. Just like how sexual intimacy has healthy, ordered, and disordered expressions, we need to see that the temporary euphoria connected to an experience does not mean that the experience is automatically for our good or the good of another. Deeper levels of analysis are required. If we do not carefully reflect 
on whether these hive switch experiences are producing Christ-like virtues and the fruits of the Spirit, which seek the good of the whole of creation, Christian communities can use the hive switch, stamp it with the authority of God's presence, and unwittingly direct people towards all sorts of aims that are not in keeping with God's intended right ordering of the cosmos. Idolatrous nationalism, culture war, political tribalism on the political left and the political right, elevation and promotion of a single narcissistic community leader can and have been fruits produced by not discerning the spirits. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Of course, I am just talking into a microphone by myself in my office. And this is way less fun if I don't hear from you and your thoughts, your feedback, and your perspectives too. Feel free to reach out in the discussion forum to share your observations, your points of connection that you've made as you've listened to this podcast, your points of disagreement. You can also connect with just launched recently a a Discord server uh, dedicated to conversations about theology and the intersection of theology with culture, science, philosophy, and all of our efforts to find and make meaning in the world. This podcast, again, isn't possible without the generous support of listeners like you over on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Micah, Dave, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam, Sarah R., Stephen H., Taylor S., and Josie. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. Again, you can find out more about how you can get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community by following the links in this description. Um, Also, another way of supporting me and my work is just just go out and buy uh, the new book and then maybe share a copy with someone else. And then you can get involved in the discussion that happens around that book on uh, the Discord server, but also in the... Um, the Patreon Theology 201 and higher group levels uh, can also participate in the book club discussion um, groups that we are having. So I'm going through and leading chapter by chapter discussions for those that want to participate. Again, find out more about all this stuff in all of the relevant links in the description below. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to hearing your feedback. Reach out on one of those channels or find me on social media on Twitter or on Instagram at Paul Anleitner. And until next time, we will talk again soon.